Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a pastor I was working for asked me the question, out of left field, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, answering that question was a journey for me, looking into the early church, the formation of the biblical canon, why some churches worshipped one way and other churches worshipped a different way, and where I fit into that whole big scheme. Well, it was in that journey that I encountered the Catholic Church. It looms large in church history, and, and there it was. And it was then, as I began to look into actual Catholic sources from actual Catholics, that I realized what I thought I knew about Catholicism was based in large part on misinformation and, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic thinker talking about a real Catholic topic from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I have a fantastic conversation for you. Let me frame it this way, okay? I'm a big fan of M. Night Shyamalan. You know, the signs, the sixth sense, unbreakable, those fantastic movies. And always in those films, there's fantastic drama and and all these things happening. And always a twist at the ending, right? A a twist ending that always keeps you guessing. And then, wow, there it is. And there's the twist. Well, this conversation is kind of like that. We're talking about works of the law, okay? The idea that Paul writes about in, in, the, in the epistles where there's this idea of, of, of something happening and it's the works of the law, okay? And the Reformation came along and, and took this and ran with it, right? You, you have Luther, you have Calvin talking about works of the law as anything that you do to try and earn the favor of God, okay? And often that's seen, especially these days too, as something that Catholics do. We as Catholics are, are working out our salvation, and, and Luther and, and, uh, and Calvin, in the spirit of Paul, condemn this. I certainly believe that as a non-Catholic Christian, one of those things that I had to dispel, one of those myths and misunderstandings that I had to dispel in becoming Catholic. But if this is the, the perspective of what Paul is trying to say, well, okay, that's, that's interesting, that's alarmist, that's the Reformation makes sense in one sense. But if this is the major pillar of the Reformation, as it was the idea of the works of the law, and Luther and Calvin maybe got it wrong, well then that kind of shakes the foundation, shakes one of those pillars of the Reformation, right? So what Dr. Thomas does, who's my guest this week, Dr. Matthew J. Thomas, is in his study of works of the law and what Paul meant by that, he looks at the patristic sources, the early church sources closest to Paul, closest to when Paul actually wrote these things. Some guys who learned from the apostles themselves or, or, or were hearers of the apostles in many cases. So very close sources and what they understood Paul to mean. And well, what Dr. Thomas finds is, is pretty remarkable, pretty incredible conclusions. Because if those sources don't agree with the sources of the Reformation, well, then the Reformation was kind of an, a, a inventing a, a theology, in a sense, and not close to what Christians always believed down through the ages, or the early church in particular. Well, it's really interesting discussion, and the first part of the discussion is all about that. And then I ask some interesting questions about Dr. Thomas's conclusions after this study, some of his personal conclusions, and here's where the twist comes in. You must stay tuned for the entire episode because it's a really good twist. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'll put it that way. You've got to listen all the way to the end. It's a fantastic, really interesting discussion on what happens when you look into these early church sources and try and find some of the roots of the Reformation in those very first Christians. Well, what do you find? I think you'll love this discussion. It's really fantastic. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic, where you two can help to underpin and support this show on a monthly basis. This is not my full-time job, takes tons of time, and so anything that you can give to help keep this show going and growing really makes it possible for me to find time to do these things in the first place. So that is deeply appreciated to cover those expenses and to keep these things going. One-time donations can be made at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic if you want to give a one-time donation to the show as well. Those are also valuable. Before this episode begins, I do want to say a hearty congratulations to Andrew and Nisha. Congratulations on your marriage. (laughs) How do I say that? What wonderful news. So, Andrew and Nisha, congratulations, and thank you for listening to the podcast. And you, dear listener, please enjoy this episode, my incredible conversation with Dr. Matthew J. Thomas. Please listen and enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. If you are listening on podcasts, we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic to watch what you are listening to. And if you are watching on YouTube, thank you. Please subscribe if you can to our channel and check us out on podcasts as well, everywhere podcasts are found. This is going to be a really fun conversation. Uh, It's been in the calendar for a bit. I've been looking forward to it uh, muchly which is not a word at all. I don't know why I said muchly. (laughs) Very much. It's going to be so much fun. Uh, I am joined this week by Dr. Matthew Thomas. He's a DPhil from a little place called Oxford. He's an assistant professor of biblical studies at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology in Berkeley, California, and the author, for our purposes here today, of a fantastic book, Paul's Works of the Law in Perspective of Second Century Reception. Dr. Thomas Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show, and hello. Keith, thank you very much for your invitation. I just got to say, I love your enthusiasm. I, As you started talking, I'm thinking, man, I feel like I'm finally on a Nickelodeon game show, which is like, you know, as a kid, this is always where your, your dream is. Like, man, what if I could actually be on Legend of the Hidden Temple or whatever it is? And I kind of feel like this is at least partially realized by, by the enthusiasm I have here. So thank you. Thank you very much. That was a... Always, always happy to bring the enthusiasm and and game show-like excitement to your life. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Thomas. I love these. I love... This is going to be two weeks in a row of these strange backhanded compliments. Dr. McNamara last week said to me, you know what? I hadn't heard of your show before, but once I heard of it, I loved it. And I said... (laughs) I said, thank you. I think that's a compliment. <laughs> and Nickelodeon game show enthusiasm, I, I think, is also a compliment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm thinking of that slime show. Did you said slime show? They dropped the slime. Oh, and oh, yeah. That what was, was that one called? It was, it was brilliant. That was my dream to be on yeah. that slime show. Was that, was it? Uh, no. Listen. What was that one called? Is family something? Or? I'll tell you later. Ah, forget. Anyway, <laughs> all, I, all I can remember is Legend of the Hidden Temple yeah. trying to put together the shrine and silver monkey and how nobody could ever yeah. well, actually okay. do it. <laughs> Listen, I am really 
genuinely stoked to have you on the show because this is some of my favorite topics talking about today. First of all, the theology around the Reformation. I, as a convert to Catholicism, that was always so fascinating for me in my journey and, and played a big role looking into the theology of the Reformers and, and why and why they felt the need to break from the history of the church and all these things. So I love that that idea. And of course, works of the law figures hugely into... I'm saying strange words today. <laughs> figures <laughs> largely. <laughs> figures all, largely. These are all good omens, Keith. I'm excited. Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> you know, uh, works of law figures, you know, a large part in the Reformation for one thing. And then you dig also into patristics. And I love the early church. Uh, that also, for me, was a huge area of exploration. I was becoming Catholic, looking into the, the history of my faith. It was the early church that I found and discovered these, these writers that followed the apostles and I love that stuff. So you have this fantastic work you've done on the works of the law it combines two of my favorite areas of theology. And I don't want those listening to think this is just going to be a huge theology nerd fest because this is accessible stuff. And I want to talk in the latter part of the uh, episode about some of the conclusions you came to, which uh, as N.T. Wright, who some of you know, uh, as he says on the cover of your book, are, are theologically explosive. <laughs> so, And not an understatement, I don't think so. Thank you. Wonderful topic. I want to begin with talking about the genesis of this, because the book you produced, the work of your of your uh, your doctorate, I think it was, is on the works of the law. So Paul's idea of the works of the law, and how the early church received that or understood that. So how did you begin to to, to think of that as an area of study? I guess is my is my first question for you. Where did that idea come from? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for me, this actually goes back to as long as, as I've been a Christian. So, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't from a Christian background originally and um, became Christian through a, uh, just a, a, you know, evangelical outreach kind of church camp thing. Uh, my friend Ryan Suzuki invited me to. Uh, so thanks. Thanks, Ryan. And man. Um, and uh, which for me made a huge difference in my life. Uh, I was from a pretty difficult background. And uh, so receiving, receiving, you know, the gift of faith at that point and, you know, having a relationship with God, starting to read scripture um, and then having life of prayer, it's all made a huge, huge difference in my life. And I, you know, as I, as I would go to, go to church, there were certain things that I found as I was, you know, trying to grow as a believer that I found really difficult to, to figure out. And probably the prime one was the way that the whole faith you know, works justification that, you know, that whole kind of dichotomy seemed, seemed to work. And so the way that that was explained to me was that you go to heaven, I use that's justification. So, you know, your eternal destiny of God based off of what you believe and not what you do based off of what you believe. So faith leaving, uh, and then kind of works as a lot of the side. So anything that one, one might do. And, I remember when I was younger struggling with this a great, a great deal because I would think, okay, um, that's, you know, it's fine. And then I would go and I would, you know, start reading the Old Testament. I think this doesn't seem like what this is saying. Um, and then I would, I, you know, start reading the Gospels and it's like, I'm not totally sure that's what this is saying either. And then, you know, you read other epistles like James or elsewhere. And I'm not totally sure this sums it up like precisely. And then even, even Paul, who's you know the one who was supposed this is supposed to be derived from, um, I would read lots of passages in Paul where he would talk about judgment according to works, and everybody 
being held to the same same standard of God, not showing partiality, anything like that. I just think, this is very odd. I can't quite fit this onto Paul either. And so this this dichotomy for me, which was you know at least in certain churches that I was a part of, was was so prominent and important and foundational for the faith. Um, I had a lot of difficulty in fitting this onto scripture and figuring out how does this, how does this actually work? And for me as a young person, actually quite, you know, it caused quite a bit of difficulty for it, for me to even think, you know, do I continue to practice the faith? Do I continue to, to, to believe this? And so, you know, as you know, growing up, middle school, high school, I, mean, I don't know if all middle schoolers and high schoolers are thinking about theological questions like this. <laughs> For better or worse, you know, I was. This was this was really important and serious for me, and it caused a lot of a lot of difficulty. And really had me on, you know, the I guess you could say kind of on, you know, the boundary between faith and unbelief a lot, a lot of the time. Um, ended up, you know, I guess you could say uh, more fully committing my life to God, even if I couldn't quite figure out how a lot of these these things, uh, you know, worked. And uh, long story short, I ended up going into to working in inner city ministry in, in Oakland, uh, where I was working with young people who were in after school ministry. And it was in that context where I found that a lot of the, I guess you could say, the things with, related to faith and works, um, they became even more acute, I guess you would say, some of the questions, because, you know, you would have people who, you know, where, you know, we're, we're, we're baptized sometimes, you know, some of the kids I'm working with, you've been baptized multiple times, things like that. Um, but who we weren't actually living a life of faith in any, any sort of way, even when they had made that, that kind of, that kind of profession. And, um, you know, a lot of questions that I had related to, you know, to final judgment, how final judgment, you know, relates to believers, unbelievers, et cetera. And so when I was in this context, I first got exposed to the work of, uh, of N.T. Wright, and it was actually his, his Romans in a week class that he did at a region college in Vancouver, where I went on to go, go study. And it was his Romans in a week class. He was talking about the word pistis and how the word pistis means both faith and faithfulness. And so translators in it, you know, and, and Romans aren't sure how to, how to translate. And I just remember I was driving my car. I, I, lucky I didn't crash because it was for me, I'm thinking, wait a second. I've always been told that, you know, faith and faithfulness are your two opposite ends of the dichotomy. So we're saved by faith, i.e. belief, and not by faithfulness, i.e. obedience, works, etc. And you're telling me that this word pistis is both faith and faithfulness. So it's the same term on both sides of the dichotomy. I'm thinking, if this thing that Paul is trying to go and to commend is, the, you know, this, this kind of fidelity to God is a more fully orb thing than I, you know, I might, might have been taught growing up. Then what's on the other side of that, of that economy? What is it that Paul is, is arguing against? And so you, just this introduction, it suddenly made a lot of things that I, I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of previously in, in scripture, particularly in Paul's letters. So I made a lot of things made, make sense. And then I also raised new questions as far as what is it that Paul is talking about then? So that was how I first got, got into this topic was on, honestly just like, you know, a, a kid, uh, you know, working in inner city ministry, working with, you know, other, other young, young people there and trying to figure this, this all out as, as best as I could. And then it ended up, 
you know, eventually uh, kind of going a little bit more academic direction. I, I think that's an amazing way of entering into such an amazing work that you've done in this book and, and the work you've done for your for your, your academic career. I mean, so it's so organic. It grew out of actual experiences. I'm not sure that's, that's usually or always the case, but an amazing thing to trace out your interest in this from a very from a very early age and then trying to solve that problem by by applying you know rigorous study to that that question that's kind of amazing i I didn't expect that that would be the genesis of this book that's a much better story than i imagined i thought you'd just say oh i read a book and thought it was interesting and so i but this is the way yeah what that's i i think back to some of the the things that laid foundational roots for me in my in my conversion uh, to the Catholic faith and evangelical, and I think of from a very early age, I became evangelical in high school. Uh, I was raised nominally Christian and kind of committed to it in high school. And pretty early on in that experience, I remember our youth group. We were probably like you. It sounds like mm-hmm. high school kids really interested in theology. And somebody brought in, um, brought in, started reading Calvin, and then brought in this idea of predestination into our into our youth group, and it was suddenly just split the youth group apart. And we were arguing on both sides of it and wrestling with scriptures. And the senior pastor had to come in, I think, and kind of quell quell the fire with with some of his teaching. But I can remember, like, you know, that for me laid the seeds of part of my conversion was, well, how come we can't look at scriptures and agree on what this means mm-hmm. if our salvation's at stake? So right, so from an early age, that kind of for me laid some framework that would later be referenced again in, in, as part of my conversion. For you yeah. in this case, it's it's this wrestling with the works of the law as a teenager, and then seeing that lived out in like in the mission field, and then going on to answer those questions. I I love that story. That's fantastic. Yeah, you know, it was really it, it was really brought to the head for me at one point when um, there is a there's there's as a kid, but I can I can say his name because. He, uh, I've, I've, I've told him that I've, I've shared this story a few times. Also, this, uh, this, this, this kid, Jonathan, who's a younger, younger kid, who's you know from a challenging background, but you know we had a really great, great connection. Um, there's there's somebody who who was wronging him. It was a figure in, in authority, and the, the figure in authority, uh, you know, was was a professed Christian, but was was doing these things that, uh, you know, it, Jonathan just had this really, really deep. I think, uh, sense that there's something bad and wrong happening here. And so Jonathan goes and tells me he's going to kill this person. And I, I remember telling Jonathan, Jonathan, you, you know, God goes and says, vengeance is mine. I shall repay. And there are certain things that God says he's going to go and take care of. And justice is one of them. So we don't have to go and to try to take matters in our own hand. We don't have to try to take, and God says it's his. We don't want to take what's, take what's God's. But it was interesting because afterwards I, I thought about it and he didn't kill his person, thankfully. Um, I, I was thinking about it and I realized I wasn't certain if what I told him was true because there was a lot of theological voices that, you know, I, I had around who their, their understanding of, the, how the Christian relates to the final judgment is that there's just basically like there's two lines, you know, there's like everybody who's an unbeliever, you go on this line, everybody who's a believer, you go on this line. And it turns out the, the line for the, for the believers is like a fast pass kind of thing. We just go and you get straight on the ride. You don't have to worry about going through security or anything, anything like, like that. And I, and I, I realized that I was trying to, you know, work through this. I remember, I remember telling the story to Chad Packer actually, and, um, you know, meeting from his office and, and you know, Chad through this situation with, with, with him. Um, I, 
it's the same kind of thing that you're talking about and having the sense of scripture is our, is our guideline. Scripture is what we're going to here. But here there's, you know, there's people that I know and respect who have different views on what it is that scripture is saying here. It's in this area where it is, you know, quite literally a life and death situation where I'm trying to give somebody honest, godly advice for why they shouldn't even kill somebody. And so that for me was part of like you, what precipitated, you know, going back to the early church fathers and wanting to know how, how was it that those who were closest to Christ, closest to the apostles, how did they go? And, you know, and, and interpret what it was that was, that was given there. So anyway, it's a similar story to yours. Yeah, that's fantastic. So you look at the old and the new perspective on Paul vis-a-vis these works of the law, like to try to figure out where they both sit. And then, you're, and then you were to, to, to look at the early church and say, well, which one best fits the early church's conception? Let's talk about the idea of the old and new perspective on Paul, because I'm not sure listeners would know what this is. I mean, don't, we don't want to dig into every single author that you go into or theologian that you go into, but maybe a little overview of what these two different views of Paul and the works of the law are and how those kind of square out. Yeah. So just really briefly, the what we call the old perspective on works of the law usually traces back to Luther and Calvin in the 16th century and those who go and follow within, you know, the, the Lutheran and Reformed theological traditions, which is, you know, up until recently, it's fairly dominant within New Testament studies. Um, their interpretation of works of the law, well, both of them see the inciting incident for Paul's conflicts as being the practices of the Mosaic law. They, they both recognize Paul's target as being works in general. And so you can think of this in terms of, at least the way that I, I go and spell this out, is in three categories. So meaning what works of what law are we talking about? Significance. What, what is signifying? What are you trying to do when you practice works of the law? And then third, uh, you know, the reason for objecting to them. What's wrong with works of the law? Why don't they justify? What's, you know, why, why are they so objectionable? Um, so both Luther and Calvin would agree that works of the law for Paul is anything that one can do either by one's own power or even by divine power to go and to try to justify yourself before God. And so it's just, you know, it's, it's basically this kind of catch-all category for anything that might involve uh, human, human effort. Um, and the significance of, you know, why you're doing this is that the one who does this is trying to go and to earn their salvation. And it's helpful, I think, to think of it in terms of, uh, you know, individually going and trying to practice this. So it's not a, a kind of communal thing, but it's individually I'm trying to go into you know, to do enough work so that God will have favor on me and will have, have, have mercy and I'll be safe. So at least for those first two questions, the old perspective is, is pretty consistent. When it gets to the reasons for the objections to works of the law, Luther and Calvin actually diverge a little bit here. And it's really interesting seeing how uh, you, you can actually get a lot of what's distinctive in their own theologies and the way that they understand what Paul is saying, what's, what's uh, wrong with these, but we can say that for later if, you, if you'd like. But the new perspective on Paul is usually traced back to the work of E.P. Sanders and then Jimmy Dunn and N.T. Rice. This is about the past 40 years. Um, starts with E.P. Sanders, Paul, and Palestinian Judaism. And basically what Sanders is saying is that the picture of Judaism that we have inherited from, you know, basically the Reformation period, which is standard with the New Testament studies, or had been until the past you know, few decades. It, it's, a, it's a picture of Judaism that doesn't fit the historical reality. 
that the historical reality of first, first century Judaism, people aren't talking like, you know, sort of 16th century semi-Pelagian Catholics or anything like that. Um, and as a result, Sanders says this, this is not what Paul is talking about by works of the law. So if we're thinking in terms of, you know, meaning and significance, the meaning is we're talking about a specific law, so the Torah, so the imposition of the Mosaic law, the Jewish, the Jewish law there. And then within that, there's certain works that always go and come up according to Sanders. So circumcision, Sabbath, food laws, sacrifices, things, things like that. And when you practice these things, you're not individually trying to go into earned merit. Like I get, you know, five points for circumcision. I get a point for every time I observe the Sabbath and then you get a certain amount of points at the end. I mean, that's, that's kind of a character, but at least gives you a sense of the way that it works or can work within the an individual framework. Sanders says, this is a communal significance. When you are circumcised, you're not trying to individually go and earn your way up to God. You're trying to become part of the Jewish nation. You're trying to become part of the Jewish people. And this is significant because salvation is seen as being tied in with the election of the Jews. And so if you're going to be part of those who will be, you know, justified and, you know, saved and redeemed by God, you need to be part of the people that he has ordained. And so you need to become part of the Jewish nation. And then that is what, you know, according to the new perspective figures, uh, that Paul is reacting against. And so this, I mean, your obvious point where this would seem to fit to, to is if you think of in Romans 3, 28 and 29. So for we reckon that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also God of the Gentiles? Yes, he is God of the Gentiles and goes on from there. So figures like that, Sanders and right, the point says, this is the issue. The issue is whether or not you have to to observe the Mosaic law, whether that you have to go and become, become Jewish uh, in order to be saved and accepted and redeemed by God. And, uh, you know, Paul's answer, according to this perspective, is no, because the covenant promises were always universal in nature. They're always meant for all nations when the promises came true, and now, and now they have. So that's a, that's a bit of what the old perspective is, what the new perspective is. And when I entered in this conversation, that was kind of what I was wrestling with, was the, these two perspectives and then trying to fit them into, you know, how, how do these go and relate to you know, what we find in scripture? Yeah. And which one, which one, and how do we tell which one is, is the right interpretation of, of works of the law and which one fits? That's so interesting because, exactly. because they are very starkly different, right? I mean, if, if you go with the reformer's definition of works of the law, and this is kind of the, the, the trope sometimes that the Reformation um, would throw against Catholics. I certainly had this in conversation with others before uh, doing the work that I do here on this show is the idea of the works of the law being any way you are working out your salvation, right? That's the old kind of perspective. Hmm. And then the new is, no, 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 by works of the law, he, you know, Paul meant like being part of the Jewish community in a sense, yeah. right? doing, doing these Jewish things, which is, which is quite different, right? Quite different in how we interpret that and, and, and kind of uh, important for really salvific questions, right? Of our salvation and how we live out the Christian life, I think. I think, you know, I think so as well. I think, again, some of the background, there's yeah. some of the ecclesial context I have in my background. This justified by faith apart from works of the law is the dichotomy through which you read you know, the, really the entirety of scripture. Yeah. This is the lens through which you re read yeah. everything. Yeah, it's kind of and, <laughs> and it's interesting because actually, uh, you know, all, all three of those terms 
can in a sense be contested depending on you know what what church you're part of and where where you're sitting but it was worse the law that you know i i first got into you know uh when i was studying with jay packer it was uh it was reading the, the books between uh nt wright and john piper that were on this topic um and i kept coming back to worse of the law it seemed like this is the hinge issue and they're just so they're so far apart on this particular question. And so I can, I'm probably anticipating a question here, but um, for, for me, the hints to go and to start looking in the early church here, it came from John Calvin because, um, uh, you know, Dr. Packer, uh, he had us read a lot of Calvin in his classes. So I got used to reading the Institutes and I got used to the way that Calvin engages with sources, the way he cites sources. And one of the things that Calvin always does is he always brings his friends with him to the party in the sense that if he's, if he's in a fight, um, you know, he's always going to say, well, I have Jerome with me here. I have Augustine with me here. I have, you know, kind of fill, fill in blank. That's a pretty cool and fight. Just aside. It's, it's, well, if you're going to have a fight, you probably want Jerome on your side. You don't want him on the other side. I'll tell you. Oh, <laughs> um, and, and so I got, I got used to the, the way that Calvin would, would do this. And so I was reading in, uh, this is the following semester, I was, I was writing a paper that was really focusing on works of law and just trying to engage the topic on biblical grounds, even though I saw that both Wright and Piper were engaging us on biblical grounds and very different, you know, uh, you know inter- interpretations. I was reading at Romans 3.20, um, where Calvin, in his, his commentary on Romans, he says, it is a matter of doubt, even among the learned, what the works of the law mean. It's really interesting. And you'll see, you see from my book, I, I start with that. Yeah. And it continues. Some thought from the addition of the word law that Paul meant the ceremonies, the Jewish law. And so he says, you know, Chrysostom, Origen, you know, Jerome, they, they thought that Paul was talking about the Jewish ceremonies. And he says, you know, circumcision, that Sabbath food laws, things like that. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, oh, that looks a lot like the new perspective on Paul, <laughs> this, this position that this early position that he's setting in contract is, you know, for the most part, they're not saying ceremonies and things like that, not using that, that particular language. Um, but the content of the discussion seems very similar to what I, I was seeing in N.T. Wright. And then he, he, then he goes and says, hey, these are why these guys are wrong. And then he says, I'm not unaware that Augustine has a different position from my own on this. And then he goes and says, what Augustine's position is, is that, you know, works of the law is anything that one does apart from God's grace, but does not include the works that are done that are empowered by God's grace, because the works that are empowered by God's grace for Augustine do justify. And then he goes and says, and here's why Augustine is wrong. And, and then kind of gives his own position. And I thought, this is very odd because Calvin's, he sort of he did, forgot his friends here, and something. Where? How did he forget on such an important question? To, you know, to bring his uh, to bring bring his buddies along. And so I was saying that in the regional library, thinking this is fascinating. I wonder if you were to go back to the earliest sources, what they would what they would say, and if they would indeed seem to sound like you know figures like N.T. Wright, like like Calvin himself is saying. So that was the inspiration to start looking. At these early sources is kind of you know first off what do they say on their own and then second can this you know hopefully provide some interpretive common ground for those you know these kind of warring back and forth perspectives which um 
you know, though I think, you know, well, well-meaning are not able to agree on the interpretation of scripture and end up, you know, pulling things in, in quite different, different directions. I'm um, thinking, you know, could early reception, those who are closest historically to the sources, you know, could they help to, to build common ground? Yeah, I think this is fantastic. Uh, I love that the inclination to do that. It, it makes so much sense, right? Because we, let's see how. Well, first of all, that little red flag that that uh, that Calvin's not bringing his friends to the party, right? That's really interesting when he always does yeah. in other contexts. Where are they here? And then let's begin to look deeper at, at that question. It reminds me. I mean, I had a great discussion. Well, I shouldn't say great discussion. But I had a discussion with somebody once about when I was I was midway through my my conversion to the Catholic Church, reading a lot of early church fathers and really really in my view seeing a lot of different Catholic things in those early church fathers that were kind of affirming some things I was I was thinking, and someone said to me, "Well, why is why is older any better?" And I thought at the time I couldn't I, I was a bit stumped by the question because I was like, "Well, I, I don't I, I'm not really sure." The more I thought of it over the years, I have an answer now, which is, I think your answer in your inclination to go look at the sources on this kind of question, right, is, well, you want to find those people that are closest to the apostles, closest to the living memory of Christ, who would be able to tell us most accurately what Christ told them without any kind of, you know, the the years filtering through or whatnot, or, or before before anything else weaseled its way into the, the faith of the church, right? I my, my friend Rod Bennett, who's a great, great popular early church writer, takes these sources, always says, like, you know, you got to look at, but you, you look at the earliest church. Those who say, for example, that Constantine corrupted the church, well, look at the church before Constantine, and you can see that, and you can see how that looks there, because we have those sources, right? So, for me, it was a very similar inclination in my, in my journey looking at the early church fathers, wanting to, wanting to answer Bible questions, questions about the Bible, by looking at those closest to the guys who put the Bible together and, in some cases, wrote parts of the Bible. Right? I think, yeah. it's, a, I think it's an awesome inclination on this question. It works a lot. It's it's genius. No, yeah, I think you're, I think you're totally right. Not that it's genius, but I think you're <laughs> I think that you're right in your uh, your your instinct. That's there. And it's similar again. Having having a, a pretty diverse you know ecclesial background um, with different sorts of levels of trust in the historical church, it was something that united you know most of the churches that I you know, had been a part of was at least thinking, you know, the pre-Constantinian church was largely a good thing. And so I was always fascinated with this period because I knew that we only had the scriptures because of their fidelity, because of the way that, you know, they as martyrs said, I, I will give up my body and I will, you know, I'll give up my own life before I will tell you where the scriptures are, before I will hand over our holy, our holy books. And so, I, and I knew that, you know, the world had been transformed through, through them. And even, you know, I think, um, at least some of the Protestant teachers, you know, that I have. So I think if you look at, you know, a figure like Wesley, Wesley really idealizes, you know, the the, the early church. I, I went to Pepperdine, which is a church, a church of Christ uh, school, which I didn't have a church of Christ background like that. But similarly, you know, they really want to stick to the first century church, but they're also whatever's closest to the first century church that they're, they're, they're pretty open to as well. And even Calvin himself, he talks in a few places about how it is that his own project is meant to be a restoration of the church that you find within these, you know, the first few, few centuries, which he, he identifies as a pure time when it comes to theology and, and practice. And so, you know, he talks in some, in some, you know, 
place in about like a 500 year uh, sort of golden age, so, so, so to speak, when you have this, this pure practice. And he appeal, appeals, you know, specifically when he's, when he's writing his card, uh, Cardinal Satellite and says, our, our project is one of restoration. We're trying to go back to these early sources and to restore, you know, what, what you have, the, the purity of doctrine and practice. And so this thing, I mean, it's an interesting tension that you end up finding because this is one of the questions where even though I, I do think Calvin means what he says when he, when, he, when he says that, there are a couple of instances in Calvin's own theology and practice where what he believes and what he says isn't actually well represented within the early centuries. And this is one of them, which I think Calvin himself recognized. And so it's a, it's a point of tension, I think, from, from his perspective. Oh, it's so interesting. So you begin to dig into these patristic sources. I was fascinated because you you dug into things I didn't I hadn't even heard of before, and I did a pretty deep dive into the into the Antinicene fathers. And you dug in. I mean, I think every source imaginable you covered in this book from the from the early church, and you kind of looked at looked at how they tackled or how they mentioned works of law. You have a fantastic little grading system that you use. I think we don't need to go into the weeds there, but. What did you begin to find as you were mining these sources? It, it wasn't as if no one mentioned works of law, I don't think. You began to find some some mentions of that. And what did you begin to find? Take us on a little journey. Yeah, so I guess uh, I can I can even go all the way back to you know a decade ago when I first when I first wrote you know the the initial paper on this at Regent College because it was a you know, I, I had that hint basically from Calvin that these early sources are saying something that's different from what we're calling the old perspective. And these earlier sources, we can call early perspectives, seem to be very similar to what we're calling the new perspective. And so I started reading these, these early sources. So Epistle of Diognetus, you know, Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo, um, Irenaeus is against heresies and demonstration apostolic preaching. Um, those are, you know, those are, those are three, you know, major sources, but, um, as you, you see, I, 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 in, in the project, I go through everything that we have from the 150 years after the death of Paul so up to St. Irenaeus, every piece of potentially relevant information, you do. um, you know, I try to include, and I mean, if there's sources that you've never heard of, there are sources I've never heard of, you know, I spent, <laughs> I spent three, three years going, I kind of turned over every, every rock that I could. And then I, what I do is I, I fast forward, um, at the end of, you know, when you get to Irenaeus up through, you know, Tertullian and, you know, the Desolate Apostle Warren and sources like that up until you get to Origen, because Origen is the first commentator on Romans that was available to Calvin and to Luther. And so they both say, yeah, well, the church got it wrong in works of the law because, you know, it was Origen's fault. Uh, he, he sort of misled everybody thinking that they're talking about specifically the Torah on whether or not, you know, you have to go and be circumcised and observe Sabbath, et cetera. What you find is that if you look through these early sources, they all sound like anti right. Um, it's 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 like somebody got like an anti right time machine and just like threw him <laughs> threw him back eighteen you know nineteenth century or something like that. That was that was honestly that was my impression as I started to read through Irenaeus and you know Justin Justin Martyr and that's you know continued on in the decade um, you know since then I've been researching and writing on, on this question. There is when it comes to the question of the meaning and significance of works of the law. There's such a close identity between what the early perspectives say and what, you know, the new perspective says. 
that we can, I think, speak of the new perspective as in reality, the old perspective and what we call the old perspective as actually comparatively speaking, a new perspective on this particular question. Um, now there's some divergence in this and, and you don't want to go too far in affirming the new perspective. I think at least from a historical standpoint of saying, you know, is there historical substantiation? Because when you get to the question of, you know, why it is that works of law are objectionable, Sanders done right, they all give you different ideas. And some of those, some of those ideas have, you know, early precedent, substantiation, I think historically. Other parts like don't don't at all. And so you, you don't want to over maybe overstate this, but at least in the question of the meaning and significance, um, what you find is it's always these points that come up. So these particular practices of the Mosaic law. So do you have to be circumcised? Do you have to, you know, obey, obey the food laws? So do you have to, uh, you know, continue to practice the Sabbath in, in accordance with, with the Jewish, the Jewish practice? Um, so that's, again, it, there's an odd sense in which there's a kind of vindication of Calvin here. Um, Calvin, I think at the end of, you could read the end of my book and say, you know, I, I told you so in a sense, like this is, this is, I'm, I'm not necessarily any farther than I was at the end of, you know, his, his commentary on Romans at the end of Romans, Romans through, through, through 20, where he's distinguishing his position from these earlier positions that he can recognize from his vantage point in the 16th century. I think the question is, what do you, what do you do with that? What do you what do you do when it seems like there's really strong historical precedent and substantiation for a particular you know perspective on on scripture and when it seems to be unified and you know I guess you say you know geographically you know diverse it's not like it's just sort of one uh, one character one area that, that's pressing some, something it's um, there doesn't seem to be controversy over the interpretation of what Paul is actually talking about here so what do you what are you going to do with it? And if um, if I you know, had an opportunity to have, have a beer with uh, with, with Calvin, um, this is everybody always says they'd rather have a beer with Luther rather, rather than Calvin. And I understand where they're where they're coming from. But if I had the opportunity for a beer with with Calvin, this is the, I, I, I would I would just love to hear hear him say, "Hey, I don't want I'm not trying to fight or anything like that. I'm not I'm not trying to you know I know it's was a kind of cordial Catholic. I'm not trying to you know go on the political <laughs> Presbyterian or whatever." Um, the, this, you know, I, I don't want to do that. I just want to hear from you. How, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you make, make sense of this? What do you, what do you, what do you do in this, you know, this, this instance? So. Yeah, because I mean, what you, what you find is, I mean, I'm reading, I'm reading this book and I'm going through it. And it's pretty remarkable. And what it, what's stacking up is time and again, in these early church sources, they aren't affirming this idea that, that the reformation perhaps presented in, in Luther and Calvin that the works of law extend to anything we do to earn salvation. That's not what Paul is necessarily condemning. He's condemning a certain specific practice or practices that the, the Jews would have done under under their Mosaic law, right? And I like that you, I think you described this idea of taking those early church fathers and plunking them down and, and letting them decide which of these two views most corresponds to theirs and that they wouldn't, in their view, see the old perspective, which which Luther and, and and Calvin kind of promoted, they wouldn't see that corresponding to what they they believe Paul was saying. And they're and they're the closest sources we can find to to when Paul actually wrote, right? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, the way that the image that you find at the end of the book that um, was just what was hitting me as I was you know, trying to summarize all this material is. 
um, if they were listening in on a modern conversation. Uh, so I, I, I took one, you know, just kind of short, shorthand one, um, which was, you know, the idea that the new perspective is that, you know, what is that, that works with the law are the mosaic practices of circumcision, Sabbath, food law. So that's, that's a new perspective. The old perspective is, you know, the Jews attempts to save themselves by moral effort that if you imagine them listening in this conversation, that they would, they would all be very perplexed as if, you know, they're standing on their heads because there's thing that's being called, um, you know, the new perspective is recognizable to all of them as their own perspective. And what is being called the old perspective is something that none of them would have any evidence of, you know, ever having heard of. And so, uh, it is, it is, it is pretty stark, I think. And again, I, I, in, in, in saying that, I don't think that I'm, I'm not trying to be polemical and putting, putting it that way, because again, I still think that that's not necessarily anything that Calvin isn't telling you as well. And even, even Luther, if he going you, yeah, if, if, uh, um, and we could, we could talk, talk more about Luther's question if you want, but Luther also, uh, you know, is, is pretty clear in distinguishing his position from earlier positions and then also from you know, the Augustinian position on this question as well. Um, but it is, it is stark and it particularly within this particular, you know, these, uh, this debate that has, has, has arisen, uh, in the way that we're framing it within, you know, contemporary biblical studies of the old and new perspective. When you actually go and try to see outside of our particular historical context, it looks very interesting. I think, uh, as an, as an outsider. Well, I, okay, so N.T. Wright, on the front of this book, you have a fantastic endorsement from him that, that calls your book theologically explosive, right? And and I got to say, I agree with him. He's right, of course. He's, he's often right on lots of things. I'm not going to disagree with N.T. Wright uh, on on too many, too many things, certain things I would. But I mean, when you think about the Reformation, right, and Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Reformers, what you usually think about is the corruption of the Catholic Church, that these Catholics who are trying to work their way into heaven. And this is one of the big framing things of the Reformation. It's one of the, the tropes that I hit against often doing this work, right? And, and I held these things, these beliefs as an evangelical before I became Catholic, that Catholics are, are working out their salvation, that we're these people that believe uh, that believe in an idea where we can, we can work and earn our salvation. And the reformers came along and said, no, no, guys, look, Paul condemns you in his works of the law. You guys are all just working it out. You're wrong. Here's why. And in, in, in my layman's view of, of the Reformation and in my own theological background as an evangelical, I would have affirmed works of the law as people working out their salvation in what you're, you're describing as the, the old perspective, which seems like that idea that Paul is condemning those people working something out is, is, is kind of... There's no, there's no agreement in the early church that that's what they that's what he meant, right? So your work kind of explodes that, I think, in a sense, and that is one of the kind of major pillars, in my view, of of the Reformation. So, I mean, I want to ask you a million dollar question in a minute, but I want to first ask you, I mean, what theological conclusions do you see stem from this idea that look in the early church, we don't see Paul condemning. We don't see anyone believing that Paul is condemning people working out their salvation. 
right? Which yeah. then became a major tenet of the Reformation. So yeah, well, I mean, gosh, I hope, <laughs> you know I mean? I hope that no, I hope that no Christian of any sort of uh, flavor is is condemning working out your own salvation because Paul tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling yeah. for it is the spirit of God that works within us. And so, considering that we're commanded to work out our own salvation, I would I would earnestly hope uh, that uh, that we, that you know that we, we we would take take that seriously. Um, you know, I think that if if one is thinking about what what can one still affirm if one is you know I think in an old perspective adherence, where is there? So points of commonality if you're looking within the early church. You know, just agree that there's nothing that one can do to merit the grace of salvation. And so if you're thinking of what God gives to the one who converts to Christ, there's nothing that we do. There's no works whatsoever that we bring as, you know, as prerequisites, if you think of, you know, passages like, you know, Titus 3, 5, um, you know, it doesn't save us by our own good deeds in the sense that our own good works are not the instruments by which we receive the grace of conversion. Now, that's also not, you know, no more worse than Mosaic Law either. It's kind of anything. There's nothing, there's no prerequisite for that. And that's actually, you put it in those terms, it's really easy to go and to map the ministry of Paul onto the ministry of Christ, because that's, of course, the same thing that Christ is doing in his own life, is he was going to your sinners and your tax collectors, and he was, in a sense, giving them the grace of conversion by his own person, by his own ministry, to those who had sort of no kinds of, you know, prerequisites that they, they could go, go and offer. And there is something that it was scandalizing, I think, for some, um, you know, in, in, in doing that. And I think that the same way that you see that in in Christ's life, in his his ministry, I think that you see that in Paul as well. And so there, that's absolutely, I think, common ground and should be common ground between old, early, new, new perspectives that when it comes to the reception of this gift that God goes and gives us, which he intends to work out in our lives to, you know, the end, which is, you know, sanctification and eternal life. Um, that's something that is completely unmerited by, by anyone. Um, I think that that's, that's helpful as, as common ground to still go and go and get that. The question is, what is, What's what is Paul talking about with works of the law specifically? So what is that actual debate about? And I think that it seems clear that the debate is not about that. And actually, Jimmy Dunn here, I think, is is, is quite valuable because he goes to point out, says, look, any any faithful Jew within the first century, if you say that receiving God's grace, the gift that God goes and gives, and you know, bringing Israel into the covenant is not something that is merited by Israel, any Jew who is faithful to the Torah or the prophets in any sort of way should absolutely say yes, absolutely. Deuteronomy 9.5, that's exactly what it goes and says. Daniel 9 says exactly that over and over. Um, the idea that it's not because of the Jews' own prerequisites. It's not even because of their own fidelity that God has gone and you know, entered into covenant with them. Um, and so I think that you can actually, Jimmy points out, says, look, that, Paul going appealing to that, he's not going against the old covenant. He's giving you 
the base terms of the old covenant and just going and restating those. And I think that he's correct there. Uh, and so I don't think that that is what the conflict over worse law is about. I think the conflict over worse law is about whether or not within the new covenant that Christ is inaugurated, whether the law of the old covenant, that is the Mosaic law, is still binding. And he says, no, because there's a new covenant because Christ is the prophet like Moses. He's the one who has instituted this new thing that's always been pro- uh, promised. The second, I think, point of distinction that you really have to, I think, you know, wrestle with, I think, at least, you know, me and, you know, those who take these things seriously, is how does, how do you align what we find uh, about, you know, final judgment? Uh, how, how do we see the testimony of Scripture and then the way that that testimony is, I guess you can say, substantiated by early reception? How does that align with our own sort of theological ideas of, of judgment because whereas you know myself you know a decade ago it was actually unclear how does the christian relate to final judgment the early the early christians are absolutely clear on this that it's not just that you know christians have the fast pass line um christians are actually judged more strictly than the rest of the world and that's because the human much is given much will be required which you can find in the new testament you can find you know in the old testament amos 3 and the reason that that's still part of the gospel message is because God's grace is actually transformative. It is actually meant to change us and to turn us into the kinds of people who can go and live in such a way that will be judged favorably so that, you know, we hear at the last day, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what God's grace is meant to do. That's the gift that God gives, you know, to us within the new covenant. And if we, if we toss that away, we just pretend like it's not, not there, we will be held accountable for it. And so for the early, you know, early church fathers, there's, there's no, I guess you could say, there's no tension whatsoever where I, I think, you know, earlier on, I, I assumed there'd be tension. There's no, there's no, there's no tension in saying that salvation is completely by grace, hundred percent. It's, this is God going and taking the initiative to go and to save us. And yet we are 100% accountable for what it is that God has given. And that's still not bad news. That's just the outworking of this good news because of the greatness of what God goes and gives in the covenant. So those are some of the kind of broader theological things that I've had to wrestle with. And I think that the early testimony, I think, you know, demands, uh, you know, one one wrestle with, I think. Yeah, because I think, I mean, in my conception of somebody like Luther and his understanding of, of the works of the law would be to say, no, I don't have to do anything, any of these works. This is a simple version of, of Luther, maybe, but I don't have to do anything to to be saved and have that salvation. And and then here are these Catholics over here doing doing these doing these works, whether it's by God's grace that infuse these works or their own independent works, all that's kind of, con- all that's kind of condemnable. But then... It, it seems to me that the early sources would say, no, we, we do have to work in a sense, whether it's God's grace working through us, but it seems to shake a bit that one of those foundations of, of the Reformation that would say, no, 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 there's no, no works at all. They're condemned by Paul. Is that accurate-ish? <laughs> I, I, I think so. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I remember um, when I was, first writing this original paper at Region a decade ago. Um, that was, I, I was reading the beginning of Luther's Romans commentary, and he goes and says, anybody who goes and defines these words dif- differently than I give, give you, because he gives these definitions in the beginning, he says, 
don't listen to them or else you're not going to understand what Roman's about. So those are what it's, you know, Augustine or Jerome or Ambrose or Chris Austin or anybody, you kind of listen to everybody or even men greater than they, um, don't, don't, don't listen to them on this. If they're defining things in a different way. And I don't, I don't think that Luther would say something like that. If he didn't realize that there is something distinct in his own interpretation in relation to the early Christian interpretation on this question, sort of what had been the historically received received interpretation. And there's places where, you know, Luther will be really explicit about this and just say the fathers knew nothing. There's a, there's a bit where he goes and says, you know, the Jews and the Turks knew better than the fathers do. Um, and you can find out all kinds of funny uh, Luther, you know, quotes, you know, on, on fathers. And I don't think that, I don't think that he's, being mean or trying to be mean-spirited, I think that he recognizes that his interpretation, his understanding of what it is that Paul is saying is quite distinct from, and in some key areas, the early interpretive tradition. And he sees the consequences of that as kind of boxing him in. So what having broken out of that box, I don't think that he's really able to look particularly favorably at, you know, those, those who preceded him in these areas. Yeah, it seems like kind of a novel, a novel innovation with scripture, right? And again, that brings me back to my my experience of of looking for the early church and looking for the church that these days corresponds most closely with that, and encountering some of these 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 novel these these novelties in in church history, right? The idea that you know, I encountered the idea of of the Eucharist in my study, and then you look at say someone like Zwingli in the, in, at the Reformation who, who had some, what I see as novel, you know, new ideas about it that really changed the face of, of Christianity. I, I, you know, I, in my study, found these different, these different novel inventions of theology, and that kind of shook me in my own faith to realize, hey, as an evangelical, I'm not necessarily following what the early church would have, what was, was believing, right? So I, <laughs> I wonder then for you, all this study, because I have conclusions at the end of reading this book that are fairly not favorable to some of the reformers, maybe, and the old perspective. When I, when you can't seem to find the old perspective in the patristics in the early church, I wonder, maybe personally, what kind of conclusions you came to at the end of all this, because it began for you as a personal quest, right? In a sense, to figure out what works of law meant. I mean, you kind of have your answer. So what did you what did you do with that answer? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, you, you, you probably notice, uh, you know, I tend, I tend to not talk about myself a whole lot and use these kinds of contexts. You know, there's a few reasons for that. One of those is that this stuff can just be really loaded. And so I'm, I'm trying to, you know, if one is trying to be, a, a, I think, a good, fair referee, um, it doesn't really help to be like, oh, and this is my favorite team. Um, and I, I root for these guys go, you know, over here and I've, I, know I, I've tried as best as I can to be as, you know, as, as, as faithful referee as, 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 as I can and, and giving, uh, giving the material and passing that on, um, you know, as, as fairly as, as possible. Um, some of the reasons, other reasons I tend to not throw, throw myself in this a lot, you know, I think of. My, my own theological hero is C.S. Lewis, and I've benefited more than I can put in words from what uh, what he's what he's given me. Um, and I think because he didn't really go and I guess you could say um, 
he didn't put his own opinions and his own views sort of at the forefront of what he was doing. It made it so that he was able to be of help to, I think, a lot more people than he would have been, you know, otherwise. I think that, you know, if, uh, you know, I, I think if the people who had given me C.S. Lewis books hadn't realized, you know, kind of the depth of his Anglo-Catholicism, if he had really put that on, on, on his sleeve, I don't, I don't know if his books would have made it into my life yeah. and made the kind of in, impact that they, that they did. And, that, and, you know, the other reason I tend to not, you know, I just try, try to kind of stay out of the, you know, the, 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 the back and forth of, uh, you know, denominational polemics is that I honestly have a lot of debts, and I mean that in a positive sense, to believers of different backgrounds. And so, again, having them brought into, you know, faith through, you know, evangelical outreach and then bouncing through all kinds of, uh, you know, churches. My best friend, Mike, his, his, uh, his family was part of a non-Trinitarian house church. And that you might think, uh, you know, might, that might seem like maybe not, not the best, whatever. But for me, honestly, it was. It was the best. It, it had this huge positive influence on my life. And being from a non-Christian background and having this practicing Christian family, and they were always, I think, in, you know, rightly so, the, the ideal for what it was to, to, you know, to be a believer. And they made me want to be, be, you know, be, be a Christian. So, um there's, I can give kind of countless stories of people from different backgrounds and, di- you know, di- different denominational identities who have contributed to my own faith, my own life in a way that I, I positively had a debt there. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to go and sort of wheel the hammer on, you know, one denomination or the other. Um, having said that, um, you, you sometimes, you can get to points in life where, you encounter a pushy Canadian and the pushy Canadian just goes and says, <laughs> Hey, I, you know, I know, I know that you, you know, you kind of like to be private and like that, but I just, uh, as a Canadian, I love to meddle in people's business. I just, I, I love to ask really hard, you know, personal questions. Can we get into your, your personal business for a while? <laughs> and, uh, and so be, because we have the honor of having, uh, you know, very meddlesome Canadian with us, I'm, I'm happy to go. And you kind of share how my own personal story relates, you know, relates to this. I, I wrote the majority of this. So the original paper and then the majority of the research and the majority of the dissertation um, still as a Protestant. But I think it's impossible for the Catholic question to not be, in a sense, looming in the background if you're engaging with this stuff. And if it's possible for anyone to engage with this without having the Catholic question looming, well, you let me know how to do it because I never figured that out. Um, and so I think I, for, from, for myself, I, I think while I was disposed towards the Catholic Church positively in, you know, a number of ways, uh, primarily from C.S. Lewis and then, you know, from Chesterton and other spiritual writers like that that I've drawn for a long time. And then, you know, other folks like N.T. Wright. Um, who, you know, really impressed upon me that the, you know, how essential unity in the body of Christ was and things like that. Um, these influences had predisposed me more towards, you know, being favorable towards Catholicism. I still didn't want to be Catholic. Oh, I, I was sort of, uh, on the, I guess, I guess you could say, um, I was prepared to exhaust every possible avenue 
um, every possible escape route that I could apart from actually becoming, becoming Catholic, um, which wasn't, which wasn't, you know, because I didn't, you know, respect, you know, the, the Catholic things that I was, I was encountering. Um, but it was just, I think almost a sense of loyalty to the context that God has shaped me through and, and has, you know, has, has brought me to faith and nourishment, I think, through, even if I would say in all of them, yeah, you know, there's, there's areas that are, you know, probably, or, you know, erroneous one, one way or another. So, um, as I was researching and writing and doing all this, I had that looming in the background and I was, you know, for a number of years trying to figure out how do I, how do I stay out of this? Um, and my, my girlfriend at the time, Leanne, who's my wife, and we have four kids in the background who are making noise and stuff and like barging at the moment. Um, we, we, we were, we were both trying to make things work within the Church of England. So we we're both trying to do, you know, the, the Anglicans. And I was actually part of the Anglican uh, generation over at St. John's that was, uh, that was kicked out of our, our church. And so, uh, the, the official Anglican Church of Canada, uh, you know, kicked us out of the, the, the building where I, I attended the, you know, the Holy Communion service with, with Dr. Packer and stuff. Uh, and so we were forced to become a St. John's Seventh-day Adventist church because we started the Seventh-day Adventist church. Uh, so all these things had to be really wrestling with questions of ecclesiology because, of course, we can't go to our church anymore. We have to go to this other church. And I'm kind of trying to fake it as, you know, you know, an evangelical kid who really appreciates history and tradition and trying to make it work in this Anglican context. My heroes are Anglican. Um, but there's a lot of difficulties. My wife was actually trained to be an Anglican priest at the time. And I think that some of these difficulties, she actually felt more acutely as somebody who was, you know, really on the, the inside of this and was trying to, you know, was going to commit their, their lives to ordination. And so we, we were wrestling through a lot of these questions on, on our own. And I, I, I basically had some, some, some mentors who were just like, you, you can't, you can't keep kicking this Catholic can down the road. Like you actually, you have to explore whether this is true or not. And so you need to start going to mass and you need to actually see what it's like on the, on the inside. And you should probably, you know, go to RCA and kind of do those things. And I just basically said like, I'm not going to RCA because I want to be Catholic, but I'll at least show up as a spy. So I started to show up as a, as a spy, uh, you know, to mass. And I had, I had a long period where yeah, we kind of do the dual citizenship thing. So we go to our, you know, the, our, our Anglican service in, in the morning and then, you know, later on, uh, you know, go, go, to, go to mass. And so you kind of do it, do it, do both, both of those. And that for me was really, was really helpful because I, uh, I was able to see how this thing that I appreciated so much within Anglicanism, it was fully realized with, within, the, within the Catholic mass. Um, and this was, I guess you could say that the, the thing that was here, the image and it's now in its fullness and it's full, full of reality. Um, did that make me say, Hey, I want to go and become Catholic. No, I tried, I tried to, you know, exhaust every, uh, kind of option that I, that I, that I could to not, to not do that. And I think that there's a piece of that where, you know, depending on what kind of Protestant background you're, you're from, I think that there's something that's existentially really, really difficult. Uh, that's, that, that's, that's there to go and to, to, to give up. But I had, 
I, I basically spent you know three years as a, as a Protestant spy, you know, going to mass both when we were in in, in, in Canada in the first couple of years uh, writing writing the, the doctorate, and it was you know still involved in you know various Protestant contexts and you know back at back at home in much more kind of low church charismatic uh, uh, kind of house church sort, sorts of things that continue to be, be involved in. Uh, so I, I was you know still still doing that, but was was it mass every Sunday? Getting, you know, able to experience what is this actually like? real life, apart from reading the church files, apart from reading, you know, Saint this or, you know, blessed that or anything like that. What's like your actual real day-to-day life stuff like? And I think as a, as a spy being there for, for three years, um, I was able to see how this started to affect me in my personal life. I was able to see, I can take one example. Um, I, I was able to see how this context, um, it, it took my cynicism, which I, I used to be a very, very cynical person. I mean, especially when it came to church stuff, I was very, very cynical. Um, it, it melted this away in my heart. It made it so that instead of this kind of skepticism and this individual individuality that I always, you know, prized, I just had this love, this faith, this hope that just seemed to in, increase Sunday to Sunday. And what was great was that. I found that when I would go back to back home to these evangelical contexts that I was, I was a part of that it, I, that, that cynicism that I developed towards those places, towards those, those kind of, kinds of, you know, uh, on our various figures, et cetera, that cynicism that I, I, I had previously just been, I, I didn't try to work it up. It was just always there. That was replaced from being in these Catholic context with that same kind of faith and hope and love that had been engendered in me through through being in mass and, and as well, and just you know again not being outside of the church but still participating in the, in the liturgical you know life and the worship of, of the church there. Um, I eventually got got to a point, you know, having having studied all this, having you know looking through all the early fathers as you know as, as, as you have Keith and then I think particularly looking at at, at this question. Intellectually, I, I, you know, I, I, I was, I was pretty well convinced. I was more convinced than I wanted to be existentially. Um, but then existentially, I think seeing the way that, you know, spending years kind of as an outsider around the church, but then the way that, that, that the love that God goes and gives through, you know, through being, you know, in, in, in mass and around mass, um, the way that, that started to change my own heart. So not, not only, you know, was I, you know, looking, you know, kind of sort of friendly ecumenical, hey, we're all buddies, but actually me who had previously been quite hard hearted towards, you know, a lot of my own evangelical heritage, I actually had this new freedom and this new, this new love that was there. And often more, more so than my evangelical friends, I had evangelical friends who were, you know, ready to just kind of toss it all out. And I'm trying to talk them off the ledge saying, no, what you, what you guys have here is almost completely right. There's just a couple missing pieces and I can see what those are now. I saw it. These guys are like, yeah, but over here. And once you get that, it all, it all works. You don't have to like, please, you know, uh, don't, don't throw all this away. I mean, when I, when I got to that, that point, you know, existential, I could see the difference that this made in my, in my own life. Um, I, I found, I found it difficult to go and to deny that. Um, I think it, it got to a point where, uh, once I recognized what God had done in my own heart, again, not even through being inside the church, but just through being in, in and around, 
um, it, I think it became a question of either obedience or disobedience. And I think that once you get to that point, you if it's obedience or disobedience, I think you got to choose obedience. So um, there's there's a really great quote um, from from John Henry Newman, and you know John Henry Newman is not always thought of as being this guy who hey you know he loves evangelicals or anything like that. But if you actually look at his writings, he similarly had this evangelical upbringing. And as a Catholic, one of the things that's fascinating is even after he'd been a Catholic for decades and decades, he still looked back on this and says, this is essentially right. This was and is essentially right. And there's a, there's, there's a bit of a quote here. I'll, I'll, I'll read this for you. Uh, this was after he had been Catholic for 41 years and he was writing uh, to an, uh, an evangelical guy who was uh, writing to him. So this was a couple of years before he died. What can I say but that those great and burning truths, which I learned when a boy from evangelical teaching, I found impressed upon my heart with fresh and ever-increasing force by the Holy Roman Church. That church has added to the simple evangelicalism of my first teachers, but it has obscured, diluted, enfeebled nothing of it. I just love that. So, um, anyway... Uh, if you're going to be a, a pushy Canadian and insist that I go and tell you, hey, how does this all relate to you personally? I, that's, that's probably how I'd go, go and answer. So. <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't realize I had pushiness as a quality, but maybe I should be the show the, the pushy Catholic. That's fantastic. Well, I'm glad to have pushed you so far because what a fascinating story. I mean, there's the head knowledge, there's the heart experience, and there's the, I think it comes down to that so many times that, the, the call to obedience or or not, right? It becomes that crossroad. I have my Canadian version of that where I was literally cooling a pot. And you lived in Canada for a while, so you know this, oh, yeah. although on the West Coast, so I don't know. I was literally cooling a pot of soup in the, in a snowbank, uh, Dr. Thomas, because I didn't want to wow. put it in the blender. I didn't want to put it, I didn't want to blend it hot. I wanted to cool it down first. And so the fastest way of doing that in Canada in the winter is to put it in a snowbank. So I'm out there in my slippers on the back porch cooling a pot of soup in the snow. And I thought, you know, I've I've read all this stuff. I've been to, to Daily Mass a bunch of times. I used to go before work sometimes before I was Catholic just to check it out, kind of like you did you said spy on it. And I thought, what what else can I do now? Like where else, you know, the the, the question that, that Saint Peter asked, where else can I go at this point? You know, I was I was I was too far gone to not become Catholic at that point, right? But it was the head knowledge and the heart experience that that became married in my decision to, yeah, I got to become Catholic, right? And I didn't study nearly as much as you did you know, of the early church to reach that conclusion. But but there you go. I mean, what a what an amazing conclusion. And I guess I love that. I love that Newman quote too. I think of, I had a, I had Father uh, Joshua Caswell, who's who's the superior of the Cannons Regular of St. John Cantius. They have a beautiful uh, church in Chicago. He was similarly a Canadian with a charismatic background. He, he was raised um, way up north in the indigenous reserves. They, they were missionaries. They were actually evangelical missionaries to the indigenous people way up in northern Canada who were mm-hmm. Catholic and who evangelized these guys. And the whole family became Catholic, which is an amazing story. I had him on the podcast mm-hmm. a while back. But he said, I think what this quote encapsulates for, for, for you and for me too, uh, he said the idea that, look, all these, all these worship songs we sing as, as charismatic Christians, 
all these longings we have to be closer to Christ, to be united with Christ as close as possible. And we sing this in worship songs, right? Like, you know, more of you, Christ, we want more of you. This is, this is quite literally fulfilled in Catholicism, right? In the, in the sacraments, in the Eucharist, in confession. You know, the, the words of Christ on the lips of a priest empowered by Christ is to give those words, say, I forgive you, right? Christ in, in the flesh, in the blood, in that Eucharist, because we believe quite literally in, in the words of, of Christ and saying that that's, that's going to happen, right? These, these things, I think that quote is, is suggesting, aren't obscured. They're, they're magnified, right? In the, in the Catholic faith. No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. And honestly, um, it's it's hard for me to put into into words the gratitude that the, you know my wife and I feel. And she was she was receiving the, to the church two years before before I was. And so she has you know she's 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 been here slightly slightly longer. But it, it honestly, um, the the gift that we get to experience um, in you know, in, in being part of the church and, and, you know, in, in being mass every, every Sunday. Um, it's just, it's just incredible. It honestly is. It's, it's one of those things where, um, again, the, I think having a Protestant background that I'm so, I'm so grateful for and having so many people who are from, from Protestant backgrounds, um, who are, you know, I, I admire and are, and are really important influences in, in my life. Um, I, I, you know, I hate, I hate to, I hate to be pushy with any of these things. And I'm, I'm, I'm much more comfortable in this sense, which, you know, I think, I think that's good because in my own work, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be as fair as I possibly can to all, all, all sides, sides of all. Um, but at the same time, it is impossible to not want this for everybody. I think that there is a, um, you know, I think that you know when you are, are able to you know to be an active you know practicing you know you know Catholic, the it's just really hard you know at, when you're done with mass on saying that gosh I wish all of my friends could be here I want them all to go and have this and especially I think you know when in their own context you know when they when they do have like you know like I used to have when they have some sort of measure of angst or some measure of sense like you know I remember things all the time it's like. What am I? What am I trying to lead people to? Because I remember I would, I, on Sunday, even you know, when I was doing interesting ministries, like that, you know, I, I know what I know how to be a Christian on you know Monday through Saturday. But what am I trying to lead people to on Sunday? What is the actual reality that's here? And I think having the gift of what Christ goes and gives us through the Eucharist, having that be the center of who we are and what we do, which again, it's not not about us. It's about what He can do in and through us, and the way that He can go and make His grace actually, you know, tangible to to us. Um, having that as, as as a gift and having that be, you know, something that we we can you know draw on you know, uh, every, every week is like, it's just, it's impossible. I think, gosh, I want everybody to have this. I want everybody to be able to minister and to serve from, from this, this place of, of fullness, because I know, in, you know, my own life, I'm trying to minister and serve and, uh, without having that fullness can, can be, can be hard. And I think that some, some, you know, my own people that I'm, I'm close to that have ended up you know, in, in more cynical places or just, just tougher, tougher, tougher spots. Um, I, I would absolutely be in the same, the same, the same boat in the same situation were it not for, 
um, you know, what, what God has shared with us. So anyway, um, I have the same feeling as you, just, just gratitude and just wanting, uh, you know, as, uh, being brothers and sisters, just to, you know, share, share the good things that we found with everybody. <laughs> well, look, I'm so glad that I was pushy enough to get that story out of you because that's just fantastic. Yeah, she's the worst. Keith. I am. I am pushy Canadians. That's the first adjective for. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. Once in a while, I don't want to be so cordial. Uh, <laughs> I hate to end this here because I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I mean. Any last words from you on on th- this work, on your experience? Anything else you want to add before I just close this off and say and say thank you? Because I, I feel like I'm I'm leaving. I mean, <laughs> I'm leaving the guests with or the listeners with a bit of a bombshell, and then we're just kind of walking away. But that's okay too. I don't know if there's anything yeah. else you want to you want to add that, well, in conclusion. I'll say I'll, I'll say I'll say two things that are kind of you know that, that they have a common core to them. Um, I think when it comes to both the specific topic that we're talking about. So, you know, Paul and you know, the reception of Paul in the early church in this particular uh, you know, question. And then also as it relates to questions of ecclesial identity um, and, you know, what, is there a true church? Uh, is there not a true church? What church should I belong to, et cetera? Um, I don't, I don't know if there is a, I don't know if there's a real good, substitute for taking the fathers and reading them on your own. And I think that um, if you think of the way that the reformers, they were always going and saying, you know, ad fontis, ad fontis, you go to the sources themselves and you, and you do it for yourself. Don't just go and take somebody else's word for it and sort of just, you know, defer, defer to them. But no, actually take responsibility you know, for what it is that, that God has given you for your, your own, your own agency and try to learn and study on your own, try to find out the truth, the truth on your own. Um, I think both when it comes to interpretive questions that, you know, which might be of a more academic nature, but also the existential things, I think going to these early sources on your own and allowing yourself to really think with them and wrestle with them. Um, I don't know if, there's any real substitute for going and, 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 and doing that. Um, there is a, there's a sort of, a, there's a, there's a great cloud of, of witnesses that God has, you know, shared, shared with us. He, you know, use, use language from, from, from Hebrews. Um, as part of our heritage, it's, you know, wherever, whoever we are as, you know, as, as believers, even for somebody that's like, Hey, the church ended with Constantine. That was it. It's all, it's all done. Gosh, go to all the ones before that. And you can think like they ended with origin. Origin, it was all terrible. You know, was it Luther says that origin was uh, the third evil angel, I think, from Revelation? Great. Origin's the third evil angel. Go to the folks before origin. But start to read this and get a sense of, you know, what are the Christian it's like it's like on your own. And you know, ask ask God to give you guidance and to help you to understand and to, you know, to, to, to practice and believe in a way that's faithful to what it, to what he's given. Because um, there's, there's riches that, you know, that are there that are, that are meant for, for all of us. And I think that when we start to experience what they do in our own lives, I think that what's great is, what's great is that God, I think, is much more glorified than he would be otherwise within our own lives when we're able to, to walk in fuller obedience to what, what he's given. It's not just like, Hey, it's all about me. I get to go to church now and not be cynical. But no, I think that honestly, um, 
I need to, you know, go back to the, the Piper line. I, which, you know, some people like, some people don't like. I think it's actually pretty good. You know, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. I think that when we have the fullness of what God has has, has, has given, you know, which I think is, you know, attested to, you know, within, within the early church, um, I know that in my own life, I know that God is more glorified in, in my life through the satisfaction that comes with, you know, having the fullness of the faith that, that he's, that, you know, he's, 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 he's given to us as, as the only go success. So anyway, I'll leave you with John Piper. That was unexpected. You didn't think it was I'm like, yeah, just go back to John Piper, do what he says, do, do ad fontes like the reformer said. But honestly, I think that the instincts there are, are good. I think it's just not, do we, do we actually follow up on it? And I think that we, we all should. So yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic, and you can buy. Uh, you, I, I did bought the Antinician Fathers on an ebook for about I think it was like thirty cents. Honestly, on like Amazon, they're they're yeah. they're, they're dirt cheap. Yeah. Uh, so and, and they're out there, and there's just tons of great stuff to read. That's fantastic, Doctor Thomas. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't underscore that enough. Having you on the show, it's been so much fun, so fantastic. Thank you for coming on here, and telling us about th- this incredible uh, mission that you went on to find the answer to this question and where that led you. I think that's pretty amazing and remarkable. Thank you for trusting uh, me with that and and pushing you a little bit. Thank you. Um, Where can people go to follow you? Are you out there anywhere to follow? I mean, they can get your fantastic book. I'll link to it in the show notes for this show. Anywhere else you want to point them towards? Yeah, you know, I I honestly don't, don't have a whole lot of kind of social media presence and I don't you know, do like Twitter and stuff, stuff like that. Um, you know, we, I, I have Facebook and I usually, uh, it's usually pictures of my kids or CS Lewis, you know, quotes and stuff like that. And so, uh, you know, for, I'm absolutely happy to go and connect with people that way. Uh, or, you know, you can send me, send me a message or if you just go through the DSVT faculty page, uh, you can find it, find, find me on there. But, you know, we've got, um, my wife and kids are, are, are such a blast and there's, you know, there's one wife and there's four kids. It's a lot of, it's a lot of people. And so I, I it's just really hard, I think, to, to be, to be faithful, uh, you know, in, the, in those duties. And then also, you know, I kind of, you know, ministering, serving and teaching and stuff and to be able to do a whole lot of that. So it's, it's fairly minimal, but I'm happy to go and just share the minimal stuff that we, you know, can't, can share. That. I hear you. Well, I'll put yeah. links to your book. I'll put links to your profile page too. If people want to reach out and contact you, uh, not hopefully inundate you with uh, with the emails, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Honestly, it's been an absolute blast. I want to say God bless you. God bless the work you are doing for the church. And and seriously, sincerely, thank you so much for, for being here and joining us today. Keith, this is honestly, this is even better than being on Legends of the Hidden Temple. <laughs> I, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. This is, even, this is even more significant for me. So thank you for being such a fantastic host. Hey, no problem. Hope that Nickelodeon's listening. <laughs> well how did you like that one i thought that was just fantastic 
fantastic. I'm so fired up. Hope you enjoyed that too. First of all, send your feedback to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you what you thought of that discussion and the episode and the wonderful little twist ending there. I thought that was so much fun. Please do reach out. I love hearing from you guys and going back to you as soon as I can. I read all the emails and get back to you when time permits, which sometimes takes a little bit of time, but thanks for your understanding, guys. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website. We're on Instagram and Twitter at CordialCatholic, on Facebook at TheCordialCatholic, and YouTube at YouTube.com slash TheCordialCatholic. Please subscribe to that channel if you head over there. That helps to grow the YouTube channel as well, which is growing by leaps and bounds every week, and I'm so grateful, guys, for your support there, too. Please do rate and review this podcast if you listen to it on Apple Podcasts, that really does help push the podcast out to new people. Just take a few minutes, write a text review, a written review of the show. That really helps people looking for the show to, to see it, see the reviews, and to subscribe. It really helps to grow this thing. And that's the whole point of this thing, right? It is to reach people with this fantastic message of Christ and his church. So thank you. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic or PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic to support this show. And truly, your support does help this thing to keep going and growing, and we need your help week after week, so thank you. Guys, thanks for listening. Please pray for me, pray for Dr. Thomas, and those who are helping to serve this church, and thank you. I'll talk to you again next week with another wonderful episode. It's going to be a good one. Come back again, please. And God bless, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.